In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehush Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory, from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Eli, Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of the three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala, and on, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, that the servant of the Lord, had commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Covenant Church, again. The only sadness is not being able to see face-to-face many friends that uh, I have been um, blessed to make over the years here. But it is a pleasure to help out Pastor Jerry uh, to give him a break. I I do want to say that uh, the staff at Covenant Church, and I know this about so many churches, um, it's been an odd time but it's probably been a harder working time for most church staffs than a very typical time would be. Uh, So I thank you all. And um, I also want to just give a shout out to all pastors and church staffs that are trying to navigate this territory. Uh, We don't have a class at seminary on how to go through uh, uh, international quarantines. And and yet, I, I just know and have been encouraged by how much hard work and faithfulness I have seen from uh, your church leaders, uh, not just here, but um, wherever I've observed them. Uh, you might recognize a common theme of this week and next week, and I just want to say, too, no snakes were harmed in the making of these sermons. And if, uh, if I say something that seems to reflect a generally negative view of snakes, uh, Pastor Cully's email will be showing on the screen, and uh, he would be glad to receive your comments. I don't want to be misunderstood, but we have a very friendly, we should call him Casper, Samuel, my son is with me here. We should call our snake Casper because he's like the friendly ghost who shows up, and the other day he smiled at my wife for a few minutes and went on his way, so we don't have a generally bad attitude towards snakes, but there are some bad snakes, and we learned about a bad snake last week which was a good snake because it was a dead snake. It, It was the bronze serpent that we read about in our past today. 
And it represented dead Pharaoh, the dead powers of Egypt that had enslaved God's people for 400 years. And God told Moses to make it and lift it up to remind God's people that the way forward was to the promised land by faith, not back to Egypt in fear. But that, this, that, that, that story of, reminds me of an experience I had a few years ago. I was uh, returning from a suburban Holopaw uh, back toward home uh, to, after having preached in a local church, and I noticed a very curious building by the side of 192. It's about 10 miles outside of St. Cloud. It says, Reptile World Serpentarium. And I thought, what could be in a serpentarium? Well, it's right across from the Not-A-Clue Bar and Grill, and it sits in a very nondescript building, but that's the name of it. And if you've been there, you might know some things about it. It's home to 80 species of reptiles and snakes, some of which are not poisonous. Among the residents are six species of cobra, 11 kinds of rattlesnakes, and Pete, a 14-foot alligator who's not poisonous, but, well, he's 14 feet. And I, I, on this hot summer day, I pulled in and I walked in. It was like little shop of horrors. It was, it was dark. It was cool. Uh, there were plants everywhere. And as my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I saw the proprietor, and his name is Bob Cross. Bob grew up in Winter Park, started studying snakes at eight years old. At one time, little Bobby had 20 snakes in his bedroom, which was fine until one got loose on the uh, ladies' card game day. Uh, but as, I, uh, adjust, as my eyes adjusted to the dark, I began to notice something about Bob. His forearms had lumps on them, like scar tissue, and I also noticed that a few tips of his fingers were missing, and I later learned that Reptile World Serpentarium is a major harvester of poisonous snake venom. That venom is used for medical research, and it's used to make anti-venom for snake bite victims. Now, I tried not to stare, but the, the scars and the missing digits, I realized, were witnesses to Bob's work. And it's perfectly obvious, isn't it? When you work with dangerous things, you're going to get bit sometimes, even if you're an expert. But how much more so when you don't know what you're doing? Our scripture text this morning introduces us to an old friend, one we met last week. He has a name now, it's Nehushtan, which means red thing, perhaps in reference to the bronze material he's made out of. It's the one Moses made at God's instruction 700 years before the story we read. And it's a reminder, it's a reminder this story is that God's people are about to get bit get bit by a dead snake. But before they are bit, God sends a snake trapper, no, not just a snake trapper, but a snake crusher to save them from being bit. It's the king of God's people that saves them from the bite of this bronze snake. And we will learn as we look at this text that this is a good king of Israel, one of God's good kings. And God gives his people a good king to rule over them, but also to overrule them. And for us today, it's going to teach us that we need to trust that kind of a king. 
because we have been given an even better faithful king, and that faithful king deserves our trust. So let's look at the story to see how God gives his people a faithful king and how his people should have faith in that king. First of all, let's look. The good news of a good king. The good news of a good king. And this means we're going to need to trust that king. God provides his faith, his people a faithful king. And that means we need to trust that king. If you look at the beginning of this text, the first few verses, it tells us of when Hezekiah became king. He was 25 years old, uh, and it tells us when in relation to Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah became king. After Solomon's death, and largely because of Solomon's policies, the people of Israel divided the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is typically called uh, Israel, or sometimes it's called Samaria after the capital of northern Israel. And the southern kingdom is typically called Judah. And the northern kingdom went their own way, departed from God's ways much more quickly, more rapidly than the southern kingdom. Uh, The southern kingdom was favored by more faithful kings who kept God's people on the straight and narrow. Not always. In fact, there are more bad kings than good kings. And that's the whole book of 2 Kings is about good kings and bad kings and how God preserves his people through good kings, but how they experience God's divine displeasure through bad kings. And Hezekiah is a good king. How do we know that? Well, we know more about his life than we typically know about kings. We know who his mother was and who her father was. Uh, We are told uh, how long he reigned, which is unusual. Uh, So when a king reigns for a long time, it's an indication that God was pleased with him. But we're told explicitly, aren't we, that he did what was right, and the word right there is straight, that he did what was straight in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He followed the example of his ancestor, the first king that God had chosen for Israel, King David. And he did all that David, his father, had done. And then we're told also in verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. So these are the two things you want to look for in a good king of Israel, doing what David did and following Moses' commands. And we're told Hezekiah did those things. So God in Hezekiah gave God's people a good king, one in which they should trust. Now, why would I be talking about kings today? We don't have kings, do we? My wife and I were watching the Netflix series, The Crown. It's about Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Very interesting. I hope even Part of it is historical. I have an idea. It's all based on history. You know, but it's funny, isn't it? The British have a monarch who doesn't seem to do much, but who has great influence. Now, we Americans, on the other hand, we democratically elect a president every four years based on promises that no one could keep. So how are we even related to the British? When it comes to political leaders, I would find Will Rogers' candidacy appealing. A number of years ago, back during the Depression, he ran for president on the Bunkless Party. He made a lot of promises. They're hilarious. He said, whatever my opponents promise you, we'll raise them at least 20%. 
And he said, and I can come as close to keeping my promises as they can. Will Rogers promised wine for the rich, beer for the poor, and moonshine for the dry. Now, you have to know a little prohibition history to appreciate the humor in that. And one of his greatest promises was, if I'm elected, my first act will be to resign. That's more in the American spirit, isn't it? But the fact is, the fact is that even those who do not have earthly kings still want kings. Just because there's no throne or crown in America doesn't mean we don't have kings or want kings. We want the strong leader who will do what we want. Uh, We want the permissive leader who won't make us do anything we don't want. And we are vulnerable to both believing the promises they can't keep or believing in them when they will disappoint us. People in authority give us accountability, someone we can blame when things go wrong. Uh, people in authority we trust to exercise power, the power to protect us, the power to provide for us, the power to preserve us and rescue us even. In an age where trust in institutions is at an all-time low, it's, very, it's a very interesting and fascinating subject to think about how in a time like this, our need for power, provision, preservation, and rescue comes to the surface. But here's what we need to recognize because we share this in common with Judah in the days of Hezekiah. Our attitude toward kings is bent. We ask too little of them of what we really need. We want too much of them of what we don't need. And they in turn abuse us, use us, or neglect us. The Bible isn't saying here that we should return to monarchies. It's just saying we all live under monarchies whether we recognize them or not. And what we need to do is recognize that we live under authorities and we desire authorities because that is one step toward trusting in the right authority. And the only ultimate trustworthy authority in this world is God himself who in Jesus Christ became king of his people. God had promised a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, an eternal covenant. And when Jesus is born, he is called the son of David probably more times than any other title. And when he is raised from the dead, the book of Romans said he was declared the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead as a descendant of David. The catechism, the shorter catechism teaches us that Jesus is a king who subdues us to himself, who rules over us, defends us, restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. He is the great head of the church, but he is also the king over all creation. And we need to recognize while every human authority will disappoint us at times, will neglect us at times, will abuse us at times, there is one king that can always be trusted, and that is God's faithful king. And for us today, it is not King Hezekiah, but the one toward Hezekiah, toward which Hezekiah himself looked, King Jesus. So God provides his people a faithful king. Will you trust him? Or if you do trust him, I acknowledge to you the joy that comes from knowing no matter whatever is happening in the world, you have a good and faithful king. The second thing this text will teach us is that God's good king fights for his people. And that's another reason to trust the king. God's good king fights for his people. He conquers his enemies and ours, and therefore we must trust him. Look in verse 7, the last half at least. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. 
Now, what's going on here? Assyria was the bad boy empire of the day. And the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, the country to the north of it, Syria, were threatened, felt threatened by Assyria, so they banded together. They wanted Judah to join in them, but the kings of Judah knew better than that. They knew that alliances with other nations was against the will of God and a renunciation of God's kingship. In fact, when Syria and the northern kingdom got together, before they went against us, Syria, they actually attacked Judah. But banding together for security against the great empire of the day was a futile proposition. And the last verses of what Pastor Jonathan read here this morning tell us that, that for the northern kingdom, they went into exile some 150 years before the southern kingdom did. And this is part of a larger story of the Bible. Just think of King Saul and King David. The people said, we want a king. And God's law in Deuteronomy 17 had said, when you choose for yourself a king. So the people said, we want a king, but the caveat was this, we want a king like the nations. And they chose King Saul, who was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was built like Aquaman, presumably. But when they went to anoint him king, he couldn't be found. He was hiding among the baggage. And later on, the prophet Samuel said to him, though you were little in your own eyes. You see, King Saul was a hollow king because his power, his esteem, his self-concept, all these things came from the praise of people. But God chose a king for Israel named David, who was not like that in any respect. His one qualification was he was a man after God's own heart. And when he went into the valley of Elah to face Goliath and they put Saul's armor on him, he realized the battle belongs to the Lord. He threw off the armor and he strode forth into the valley as God's champion because he knew the real king of God's people was God himself. Psalm 20 tells us, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The one great failure of David besides the sin with Bathsheba was that he took a census at the end of his reign and the census had a military purpose. You see, David's great failure there was to start counting his troop strength. When he had the Lord of heaven and earth and the Lord's armies at the service of God's people. You see, for us, we need to recognize that God's good king fights for his people because God's good king trusts the Lord as the king of God's people. The Psalms are rife with this. If the Lord is for me, what can man do to me? Investment diversification is a wonderful financial planning strategy. I'm a recovering CPA. My son is an accounting graduate. I know a little bit about investments, and I know that you spread the risk, right? That's a very good financial investment strategy. It is a horrible spiritual strategy because loyalty to our king God himself, through his servant Jesus Christ, loyalty cannot be an undivided loyalty. And you see, what God was doing with Assyria was what he's 
ultimately did with Babylon, and even what we learned last week with the snakes biting Israel in the wilderness, is that when God's people begin to wander from them, he gives us the gain of the pain to turn us back to him. All the empires that came against God's people in the Old Testament were not there by accident. They were there according to God's purposes. In the book of Hosea, when God speaks of the exile that's coming, he says, I will take you into the wilderness and there I will speak kindly to you. It is in exile that the still small voice of God is able to penetrate through our divided loyalties. We don't need to go into exile though to know this because God has testified here that God is a powerful king who defends our interests and no matter what's going on in your life right now, God is for you if you are in Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. That can famine, peril, persecution, hardship, sword, anything. Can any of these things separate us from the love of God which is in Christ? No, we are conquerors and more. That doesn't mean we are delivered from every hardship and peril and difficulty. If you are in the middle of unemployment or if your bank account is drained or if you've experienced the grief of death from the circumstances that have been happening or just the normal terrible stuff that we experience in life. It doesn't mean God's going to rush in and put a bubble around you, protect you from this fallen world, but it means that no matter what you're experiencing in life, God is on the throne reigning and ruling, not just for his own glory, but for your good, for my good. And we must trust him. The disciples said to Jesus, where else can we go? You alone have eternal life. Do you believe that? Have all the kings that you have trusted in, including what John Calvin called the king which we all bear about inside us, all of the kings that have disappointed you, all those authorities, all the people you have depended upon as they have disappointed you, do you believe that God will not disappoint you? That God can be trusted? And that you know he can be trusted because you know Jesus because you've seen the life of Jesus. You saw how he had mercy upon the merciless, how he lifted up the weak, how he gave a place at the table to strangers and orphans and widows, how he would not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoking flag. That is the goodness of God, not just in offering himself for our sin on the cross, but the goodness of God to show us that God is a good king who does good. And he will see to our interests because in Christ we are now his. We belong to God. We will never be abandoned. We are not orphans anymore. So God gives his people a good king. And this good king fights for his people. And for both of those reasons, we must trust him. But there's a third thing that this text teaches us. God not only only gives us a good king who fights for his people, he gives a good king who fights with his people. Fights with his people? Yes, let's look to see how our text teaches us this. What was 
Hezekiah's first action reported here when he becomes king. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Assyria had made offerings to it. So in removing the high places, uh, it, was the, it was the habit, and is still in some cultures today, the habit of building sacred altars on high places, the places that are closest to heaven. And God's law specifically forbade that because those sites were sites where the pagan gods were worshipped. And Hezekiah was a good king because he did away with false worship on the high places. And the pillars and the Asherah. Asherah is a, 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 a Canaanite goddess uh, considered uh, in, Can- in the Canaanite uh, religion to be a consort of uh, God himself and one of many gods. And so what we're being told is that a Canaanite god was being worshipped alongside God. And not only were the pillars, the sacred trees and the Asherah poles broken down, but he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It just so happens that the Assyrians have a snake-like God. And so here we see ecumenism at its best. If you've got an empire called Assyria that is ready to rain terror down upon you unless you obey what it tells you to do and pay tribute that it demands, seems like a good idea, right? Bring one of its gods into your temple. We have Yahweh, we have Asherah, our Nehushtan. But remember where this snake came from. It was at one time a symbol of a dead God that God had made dead. A symbol of the powerlessness, of the futility of depending upon a great empire at the time, the empire called Egypt. But somehow over the years, this dead snake has become a live snake or a resurrected snake, or can we call it a zombie snake? It's undead because it was created in the beginning to symbolize a dead power, but it's resurrected to symbolize a living power. You see, you have here the heart of idolatry. Now, there are three kinds of idolatry in the Bible, and we need to pay particular attention to this. There is a kind of idolatry that calls another god by another god's name, and he's worshipped according to the other god's ways. Like Baal was worshipped when Elijah and the prophets of Baal did combat in, 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 uh, on Mount Carmel. So there's worshipping other gods by their names. But there's another kind of idolatry that's more subtle and even more dangerous. And that is worshiping the God of the Bible according to other than he is. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, if you remember from Exodus chapter 32, the people grew impatient, waiting for Moses to come back down and speak to them. And and they grew impatient, and so they said to Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. And Aaron, the high priest, 
collected gold, which they had taken with them out of Egypt, and he fashioned golden calves. And when, he, when, when the golden calves were fashioned, he said to Israel, behold, the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron wasn't naming an Egyptian god. He wasn't naming a Canaanite god. He was naming the god who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, but he presented God differently other than he was. He presented God in the symbol of an Egyptian God, but called him God. You see, that's what's going on here. Well, this bronze serpent, God told Moses to make this bronze serpent. How could it be wrong to put this serpent in the temple alongside the Ark of the Covenant, alongside everything else? How could that be wrong, especially if it makes us better friends with Assyria? You see what's going on here? It's instead of worshiping God as he is, worshiping God as he has revealed himself, it's standing in front of a mirror and claiming to worship God. A.W. Tozier in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Tozier's saying there's just something inside of us. And John Calvin said, the heart is an idle factory. That there's something in us that wants to remake God into our image. Even as we still claim him and name him as the God of the Bible. It's a subtle thing where God begins to look more like us rather than how we're supposed to become more like God. When we moved down here to Central Florida in 1991, one of the first Proverbs we learned, you know what I'm about to say because we're all about snakes today, right? There's a coral snake and there's a what? King snake. And they have the same basic color pattern, except what? Red next to yellow, there's a fellow. Wait, no. Red next to yellow, kills a fellow. Red next to black, friend of Jack. There are other rhymes involved uh, that that are equally confusing. And if you look down at your foot in the kitchen on the tile, like a friend of mine did uh, up in uh, Longwood a few years ago, you might have a little trouble recalling the right proverb at the time. It was a coral snake, by the way. But you see, the difference between something deadly and something harmless can be very subtle. What's the difference here? The difference is that we bend the image of God to look like us. I want to speak frankly to you this morning, and perhaps with a little more freedom than I might speak to a lot of churches, because I feel we are friends. But there is a phenomenon happening across the, our country today, where people are sure that God is on their side, but what they believe bears very little resemblance to what God is like. And it spans the political spectrum. It's neither left nor right. It's both. So that God's people are being less and less distinguishable as people who worship God in Jesus Christ, a people who have 
kindness toward those in need, but who stand up for the right, who are willing to bear hardship and persecution for what they believe rather than to stand in the public square and demand their rights as another political lobby. Uh, As a people who claim that if you believe enough, you'll be rich, forgetting that though Christ was rich, he became poor, forgetting that the kingdom of heaven is blessed for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for those who mourn, for those who are the poor in spirit. Church, it's time for those who are truly committed to following Jesus Christ to look at what we believe and not pick and choose which parts of the gospel we like, which ones we don't, and which pieces God left out that he should have included that affirm my place in the world, preserve my interests above the interests of others, because Christ himself put his interests secondarily to ours. Philippians 2 tells us, doesn't it? Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself, took upon the form of a servant. Does the society in which we live, does the culture in which we live, recognize us as being people who were pour out their lives for the life of the world? Do they? It is the power of the church's ethical witness. From the very beginning, the days of Israel, Deuteronomy 4, all the way through to the end of time, it is the power of the church's ethical witness that will draw the nations to the mountain of the Lord, the light that Israel was purposed to shed to the nations, which is now the church's mission, is to be a peculiar people above it all so that people could be freed from the dead gods that they resurrect daily in their own lives. We can't be resurrectors of dead gods. We can't let bad snakes become good snakes and good snakes become bad snakes because it confuses the world. It renders us captive, enslaved. And so Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, would eventually themselves be taken off into exile because The good kings were not enough. They couldn't make the people good. Thank God that King Jesus has come. That King Jesus has come not simply to be a faithful king and to rule over and defend and protect his people, but thank God that Jesus is a king who will fight against us. I love this little question Tim Keller often asks. I I think it's a wonderful diagnostic question. He says, does God ever argue with you? Do you ever in your heart say, I'm wrong. I know I say I believe I'm right, but I know I'm wrong. About other people, about my place in the world, about what's really ultimately important and what's not. Does God tell me I'm wrong, even if I don't like it? If God never argues with us, we're not looking at the Lord of heaven and earth. We're not looking at the ascended Christ. We're just looking in a mirror. And you can hear the voice of Aaron when we do that. When we're looking in a mirror instead of at God, let's hear the voice of Aaron clearly saying to us, Behold your God. We have a good king, King Jesus. And he can be trusted 
because he is good and does good. And this good king fights for us, but thank God he fights against us when we wander so that we can be brought back into his presence. David Foster Wallace, and perhaps you've heard this quote, I've heard it many times and I've said it even more perhaps. But the late author David Foster Wallace, in a, who was not known to be a Christian, in a commencement address at Kenyon College, not a bastion of biblical spirituality, he said this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Dead gods make their worshipers dead. The living God will make his worshipers live. Thank God that he crushes the snake. God has always been a snake crusher. He tamed Leviathan when he created the world. He crushed Pharaoh's glorious tyranny. Hezekiah was imitating God as the snake crusher when he crushed Nehushtan. After all, God had promised in the garden that one day a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The last snake crusher, in fact, the final snake crusher, is Jesus Christ himself. And as we learned last week, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he crushed death itself and put every other power to shame. He's a good king. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for visibly, before the world, vindicating King Jesus, raising him from the dead, exalting him to your right hand with power. Please, Lord, come and do your work in our life. Whatever you're doing in the world that we don't like or are worried about, do the work of conquering the kingdom in our own hearts so that we might know your goodness even in the midst of all the chaos and cacophony that surrounds us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.